Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune, and this week's episode is Richard, Third Duke of York, Part 2. Welcome back for Part 2. Before I start, I'm really excited to announce I've joined Past and Present Media as a brand partner. I was flattered just to be asked. Make sure to take a look at their other great shows, including History with Jackson and Past and Present Media podcast. Back to our story. Richard is preparing for his return to France. Last week, I shared stories from his early life and first mission to France. He had been successful in many ways, but was kept away from the central area of power. Hopefully today, I'll be able to explain more of what was going on. And with that, on to the episode. Richard seemed less than excited to take up the post in France. He was slow to make preparations to leave, but at least this time he would be paid on time. Well, at least the first payment. The English forces in France were already dealing with a lack of funding, and it's unlikely Richard would want to go there underfunded. Richard finally left London in mid-May 1441. He was accompanied by his wife, which would have been a nice change from his previous appointment. He was also joined by Richard Woodville, originally a lowly squire in the service of Henry VI's uncle, John, Duke of Bedford. Woodville had secretly married Bedford's widow, Jaquetta of Luxembourg. Oh yes, it was a scandal. Due to this secret marriage, he had been forced to pay Henry VI £1,000 before he and his wife were welcome in court. An obscene amount of money for a squire. Thankfully, Jaquetta was a wealthy widow whose holdings earned her at least £7,000 annually. Do remember that Jaquetta is the king's aunt by marriage. It turns out the lack of children between Bedford and Jaquetta was not her fault. By 1441, the couple had three surviving children, including their oldest, a daughter named Elizabeth. It also turns out that though a humble squire, Woodville was a brilliant military mind and would prove himself while in France. Waiting for Richard in France, as on his earlier trip, was John Talbot. Richard was, again, ready to defer to the more experienced man when it came to matters of war. This, I think, is an indication of his growing character. He was willing to listen to those who had more knowledge than him to get the best outcome. This is important for later. Richard's forces were able to drive French forces almost to Paris. The French, as had become their, not unwise, tradition under Charles V, avoided battle. 
It's important to note that while there weren't any battles pushing the French out of parts of Normandy, should be seen as an English win. Sadly, not long after, the French took Pontoys, a city in the Vexin, which had been under English control. This city had been besieged for three months. It would have been a blow to Richard, after all the work he had done. He had even relieved the city once. Sadly, his lack of resources would hamstring his efforts. While he would have started out with enough funds, the Exchequer in England was always slow to pay him anything past his first installment. Richard would actually send Talbot to England to speak in Parliament when it was called in January of 1442. Talbot may have been upset by the king's focus. While men were dying in his name in France, Henry VI was busy spending almost all his focus and funding on building King's College. Richard had sent Talbot to share the difficulties facing those fighting in France to Parliament. Protecting English interests and military strength in France had been Talbot's life, and Richard seems to have thought he was the man to express how trying the situation had become. Of course, Talbot's mission would be derailed by a scandal that would confuse most modern minds. Are we ready? In October 1441, Gloucester's second wife and former mistress was convicted of witchcraft. No, I am not joking with you. This was a real charge. And patrons will know this isn't the first time a witchcraft accusation has been used against women in the royal family. It's not the last either. She was found guilty of paying astrologers who predicted the king's impending death. Spoilers, the king will live a lot longer than predicted. She wasn't executed, which is nice, but she was forcefully divorced from Gloucester and spent the rest of her life in prison. Her co-conspirators were not as lucky and were executed. As one would imagine, this was embarrassing for Gloucester, and he basically retired from public life. That meant the leading man at court was none other than Cardinal Beaufort. Before moving on to the actual events, I want to give a little history for Talbot. While he wasn't of what would have been considered noble birth, he wasn't a nobody. He was a descendant of Richard I of Normandy through an illegitimate line. Richard I of Normandy was one of William the Bastard's great-grandfathers. Talbot's father was a baron, but John was a second son, which means he was unlikely to succeed to his father's barony. But he was of a military mindset and focused on that aspect of his life. He would, though, succeed to the barony on the death of his niece in 1421. A barony, though, wasn't what it was during the Anglo-Norman period. Instead, it was a nice title that usually provided minimal land. Talbot's mother, though, had an older title, but it was still only a barony, and went to his brother originally as well. Where Talbot got lucky was his mother's second marriage. This gets a little complicated, so bear with me. Talbot's mother married Thomas Neville, Baron Furnival, who had a daughter, Maud, who was married to Talbot in 1407. Thomas Neville was the younger brother of Ralph Neville, Richard's father-in-law. This makes Talbot Richard's cousin-in-law and step-cousin-in-law. Everyone really was related. <laughs> Talbot's service in France and earlier service in Ireland didn't go unnoticed, and after his first wife died, his second marriage was a bit of a step up. He was married to Margaret Beecham, the daughter of Richard Beecham, Earl of Warwick, 
Yes, the same Earl of Warwick whose death led to Richard's second appointment in France. Talbot would be elevated to the Earldom of Shrewsbury in May of 1422. Interestingly, while he was in England asking for reinforcements, he met his daughter, Eleanor, for the first time and managed to get his wife pregnant. She would deliver their youngest daughter, Elizabeth, in late December 1442 or early January 1443. Out of curiosity, I took a look at further family history, and Talbot's grandson would end up marrying the daughter of a duke. So if anyone wants to talk about grasping for privileges, either now or at any point in history, just remember, both the gossip about it and the grasping have been done before, and at the end of the day, royalty isn't actually special. They were just drinking buddies with the right guy circa 1066. Or, you know, the mayor of the palace in the right year. Cardinal Beaufort and the king pushed for peace. It turns out their rival in France was not interested in peace per se, but in controlling his whole country and then having peace. The English king of France had sent peace envoys to the French king of France in February 1422. Charles VII decided he didn't need to negotiate for a kingdom that was his by right and slowly becoming his by force. Henry VI's peace envoys would return without having gotten anything, like peace, from the French king. Due to a lack of peace in the attempted peace talks, Henry VI did send Talbot back to France with 2,500 additional troops in May of 1442, which is great. Well, until you learn that Cardinal Beaufort saw to it that his nephew, Somerset, received 25,000 pounds in funding, while Richard wasn't paid for the year. Oops. <laughs> I could see why Richard might not like the Lancastrian faction in coming years. Oh, and all that money did, well, basically nothing. Plus, Richard and Talbot weren't able to do anything except barely hold position in France. Somerset would eventually return to Normandy after having achieved nothing. He would die there, possibly by suicide, though he was unwell, so it could have been illness in 1444. Really quickly, I'd like to point out, I think peace is a great thing. I just think you need to plan it better <laughs> if you're going to go for it. And not leave leaders that you've sent over with a certain charge hanging out to dry with no funds. Further on with Somerset, he was survived by his only legitimate child, Lady Margaret Beaufort. She'll get her own episode soon, don't worry. Since Richard wouldn't be winning any further battles in France, thanks to Cardinal Beaufort's machinations, he would be forced to serve out his term in Rouen, keeping the Norman lands running for a king who didn't seem to worry about his French possessions. Richard did negotiate an impressive peace deal with Burgundy in 1443. The Burgundians seemed to have regretted leaving the English for the French, since Charles VII had ignored them. I mentioned earlier that the Crown had sent Somerset back to France with funding that Richard likely felt was his. And I've mentioned Henry VI's inability to problem-solve between his nobles. By allowing Somerset to wage war in the theatre that Richard should have controlled, the king set the two men, or their families, on a collision course. Both Somerset's daughter, Lady Margaret Beaufort, and his brother Edmund would blame Richard for Somerset's failings in France. This was despite the fact that Somerset's failures were his own, and Richard had literally no control of his actions. 
because Henry VI had not given Richard clear leadership over Somerset or removed Richard from leadership in the area that Somerset was, Henry had opened Richard up to these personal attacks. While Richard was in France, his wife gave birth to three of their children in Rouen. Edward, the Earl of March, the future Edward IV, was the oldest, of course. He was important to the House of York as Richard's heir. The couple's second son, Edmund, and a daughter, Elizabeth, were also born while they were in France. All three of these children would survive childhood, and two would survive into adulthood, and Edmund would come heartbreakingly close to doing so as well. Now, there's something really important about Edward, Earl of March's birth. It's the timing of it. Some gossip mongers of the day and some fiction novelists of our day use this timing to suggest that he was illegitimate. He was born at the end of April, 1442. Richard would have been near Pontoise in August of 1441, 40 weeks prior to this date. He would not return until the 20th of August. Now, this assumes a 40-week pregnancy, but... Any pregnancy between 38 and 42 weeks is considered full-term, and pregnancies as early as 36 weeks are usually viable, even without modern medical assistance. Even earlier can be with some minor medical assistance. The 20th of August, 1441, to the 28th of April, 1442, is one day short of 36 weeks. Even without modern medicine, a well-fed mother who had successfully delivered children in an environment where her needs were met and her child wasn't exposed to illness this early isn't likely anything to worry about. Also, what did Cecily have to gain by having a child with a man other than her husband? Really, she would have been surrounded by women of their court in Rouen. Her security would have been protected by her guards. And she and Richard seemed to get along really well. Plus, most importantly, Richard never seemed to doubt his son's paternity. And Edward looked like two of his siblings based on accounts. Two siblings whose paternity was unquestionable. Oh, and he was pretty. In that Plantagenet way. You'll remember this is a trait from Edward III via both his parents. And since Richard and Cecily were both descendants of Edward III, it's not surprising that they would have a Plantagenet pretty son. The accusations that due to his height, he couldn't have been Richard's son are also rather easy to disprove. Edward was descended from both Lionel of Antwerp and John of Gaunt, who were both noted for their height, especially Lionel. The Plantagenet family in general is known for having members of greater than average height, so I wouldn't use this to discount Edward's paternity either. My personal opinion mirrors my thoughts on anyone suggesting Isabella of France was cheating on Edward II prior to her known liaison with Roger Mortimer. There's no evidence for this. It's just rumor and slander used to put down powerful people, or worse, to insult women throughout history. Finally, as I've mentioned countless times probably, the child of a woman is assumed to be her husband's unless he intentionally rejects it. And just like Richard's father, Conisper, was claimed by Edmund of Langley, Richard never treated Edward as though he were anyone's child except his. Henry VI was 22 in 1444 and still unmarried. 
He also hadn't been betrothed to anyone, though a few brides had been suggested. In seeking a truce with France, both Henry and Cardinal Beaufort were hoping to find Henry a French bride. They may have preferred a princess, one of Charles's daughters even, though the first cousin thing is pushing papal dispensation. The amount of time I spend looking through the marriages of royalty and nobility at this time really shows me that in England and France specifically, first cousin marriage was rather rare. Second and third cousin marriage was much more common. Would the Pope have granted dispensation? Yes, if France and England had paid him enough. But Charles VII was unlikely to send one of his daughters to marry the man who was claiming his throne. In addition, Charles's oldest two daughters, Radegonda and Catherine, were already betrothed or married. His next four surviving daughters, Yolande, Joan, Joanna, and Magdalena, were all ten or less at the time of these negotiations. Based on Henry VI's age and his lack of heirs, and his uncle's lack of heirs, I imagine waiting around for one of Charles's younger daughters to grow up would have been difficult. Plus, in Charles's defense, yet again, marrying your daughters off to the man who is still claiming your throne and is the son of the man who had you disinherited seems like a decision most fathers wouldn't want to make. Instead, the French king offered his niece, Margaret of Anjou, then 14. These negotiations were overseen on the English side by William de la Pole then the Earl of Suffolk, who would earn himself the title Marquess of Suffolk for his work. He was also given the wardship of Lady Margaret Beaufort, who was his wife, Alice Chaucer's maternal cousin. In these negotiations, Suffolk had something with him that almost no one in England outside of the king knew about. A letter offering to return Maine to the French as part of René of Anjou, Margaret's father's holdings was sent. This letter would have a lasting impact on English politics, and I will come back to it very soon. Do remember, this return was not set to occur until April of 1446, so two years after the start of negotiations. And it was meant to be predicated on the French king sending peace envoys to England to discuss long-term peace. Though, interestingly, there was no written requirement for peace envoys in exchange for the return of Maine. Henry VI might have been too trusting in many ways. One more thing I should mention. Maine, at least the majority of it, was held by the Beaufort family. I can only imagine how overjoyed they would have been to learn about this plan. And after this message, you'll hear more. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now. I don't want to pick on anyone, but I've heard a few other history podcasters and fellow historical educators discussing how the French wouldn't send a French princess to marry Henry VI. But I think choosing Margaret of Anjou was actually a really thoughtful move on the part of Charles VII. He couldn't send one of his daughters. I feel that he probably thought the relation was too close. And that whole claiming his throne thing. His Burgundian cousins would have used marrying any one of their daughters as one of their schemes, and the Orleanists were just as scheming at this point. Instead, he sent his beloved niece, the granddaughter of his protector, Yolande of Aragon, and a woman he thought could handle herself. You'll remember Yolande from the earlier Dauphin episode, daring the French royal couple of Charles VI and Isabeau of Bavaria to come take the future Charles VII from her protection. Margaret of Anjou may have been called a she-wolf by later generations, but I don't think Charles VII was choosing a throwaway member of his extended family. Instead, he was entrusting someone he cared about to England. Yes, women were often used as bargaining chips. But Charles VII would have known he wasn't sending his niece to a monster. Henry VI's reputation as a kind man was well known. What no one was expecting was for Margaret to be even stronger and more ready to fight for her rights than even her grandmother had been. Margaret had actually been raised for much of her life in her grandmother Yolanda's household. Her father, René of Anjou, was Yolande's second son by Louis of Anjou, an uncle of Charles VI making him both a second cousin and brother-in-law of Charles VII of France. René would claim the crown of Naples from 1435, but he would never successfully hold the kingdom. He did control Anjou, though, which borders parts of English-controlled Normandy. This marriage was able to seal a two-year truce between France and England. Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou were married by proxy in May of 1444, but she wouldn't meet her husband for almost a year after this. They would marry in person in April of 1445 in England, and she would be crowned on the 30th of May, 1445. Richard didn't play a large part in the negotiations related to this marriage, but he would help escort Margaret through English-held lands in France on her way to England. I think it's rather lucky for Richard that he couldn't be blamed for the territorial concessions that this marriage took from England and gave to France. It's interesting, knowing how the story ends, to wonder what the meeting between Richard and Margaret of Anjou would have been like. 
She was only 14. He was 33. He probably couldn't have imagined how strong of a woman she became, and she likely saw him as one of her husband's many supporters to be a fly on the wall. Having assisted his king in a minor way, Richard now looked to help himself. He wrote to Charles VII of France looking to procure a bride for his oldest son, Edward. Yes, the King of England couldn't have a French princess, but it appears that Charles was happy to discuss marrying one of his daughters off to the son of a duke. This may sound underhanded, but it appears that Henry VI was aware of these negotiations and didn't feel the need to stop him. He may have even encouraged them. Charles originally offered his youngest daughter, who was a year and a half younger than Edward, who was three at the time. To us, this would seem an acceptable match, if disturbing to think of child marriages. But Richard actually asked for one of Charles's older daughters, likely so the marriage could proceed as soon as Edward was old enough. It's important to remember, while Gloucester was Henry IV's heir, he was getting older and hadn't had any legitimate children. After Gloucester, the Beaufort line were excluded from the crown. I promise I will cover this more in Lady Margaret Beaufort's episode. This means that Richard could have been next in line after Gloucester, at least until the king and Margaret of Anjou had a child. This probably would have been complicated by Henry IV's sister's children, but we won't worry about them for now. Parliament was called in 1445, and this would be an experience for Richard. The Lord Privy Seal, Adam Mullins, the Bishop of Chichester, had privately, to others, including nobles, suggested that Richard was guilty of poor management, both militarily and financially, in Normandy and France in general. Richard brought forth Mullins' accusations during Parliament to petition his reputation be restored. Richard also wanted to make sure the king publicly acknowledged that his management in France had been acceptable. Mullins publicly claimed that he did not make these accusations. He asked that those present and Richard know that he was not making accusations. This may seem like one of those silly moments in question time. For my American listeners, this is when members of parliament can ask questions to the government. Find some on YouTube. It is worth watching. But it was serious. Just like now, a man's reputation was important, and both Richard and Mullins wanted to protect their respective reputations. And by publicly bringing the charges, Richard was forcing the nobility and the king to acknowledge his work in France had been good. He was also putting a stop to rumors and preventing these from being an earworm to the king. And finally, by bringing this to the public attention, he may have been requesting the king's public support. Richard would regularly seem to need to request the king's support, and this will come up again and again throughout his life. Despite all of Richard's good work in Normandy, and the king at least suggesting he supported Richard, he wasn't reappointed as lieutenant general in Normandy. It appears that he expected to be reappointed because he didn't move his children and his wife back to England with him when he visited for Parliament. One of his children, Margaret, was born while he was in England. In December of 1446, Edmund Beaufort was appointed to the position in Normandy. This may have been Cardinal Beaufort's political maneuvering. He may have started to see Richard as Humphrey of Gloucester's man and wanted one of his own nephews in place. While Richard was out of power in France, he was in favor in England. The king had bestowed gifts on him in the months before Edmund's appointment. 
The following year would be a full one. Parliament was called in December of 1446 and assembled in early February 1447. Henry VI still hadn't handed Maine over to the French, and the public still didn't know about this secret treaty provision. Gloucester had made it clear that he blamed his nephew's advisors for the territorial losses in France. These had occurred both before Richard's appointment and during due to lack of funding. Parliament wasn't being held in its normal location. Originally, it had been set to happen in Cambridge, but it had been moved to Bury St. Edmunds. This was to the east of the original location and away from areas where Gloucester was popular. Not that it would have mattered for him. On the 20th of February, 10 days after Parliament was open, Gloucester was arrested. The king suddenly felt that his loyal uncle was trying to have him killed. Now, Henry hadn't shown signs of mental illness yet, but could this have been an early sign? We don't know. Before he could be tried, Gloucester died on the 23rd at the age of 56. There are plenty of historians who think he might have been murdered, but his official cause of death was stroke. With his death, Richard lost an ally who could have helped keep him close to court. While Richard had been close to Gloucester, he did not protest his arrest, and was rewarded, at least financially, with Gloucester's death. In a final insult to Gloucester, his former wife, whom he'd been forcefully divorced from, was declared legally dead, less than a month after her late former husband's death. She would live for another five years. This was done to make sure she wouldn't have any claim on Gloucester's properties. More than a century after Gloucester's death, the Grafton Chronicle implies that Margaret of Anjou had something to do with this whole affair. I think this is probably mud being slung at women, which we know has happened a lot throughout history. A different chronicle, also written a century later, says that Gloucester's death was what led Richard to decide to become King of England. And I think this is also mudslinging. While Cardinal Beaufort and Edmund Beaufort were both powerful in court, a great deal of power was resting with William de la Pole, now the Marquess of Suffolk. He had been promoted after his negotiations with France for Margaret of Anjou. And that little giving Maine back thing. Suffolk likely encouraged the king to make sure that Richard was bribed not to speak up about the treatment of Gloucester. Not long after Gloucester's death, Richard and Suffolk would lose one more person who could compete for the king's attention and ear. Cardinal Beaufort died in early April 1447. I'm sure the king was sad, but I can't imagine Richard was heartbroken. With Gloucester's death, Richard moved up in the line of succession to next, unless we get into arguments about Henry IV's sisters. There are episodes about them coming up. The Beaufort line had been excluded, and that left Richard as theoretically heir from both Lionel and Edmund's lines. The contrast between the king and his cousin would have been striking. Henry VI still had no children. He and Margaret had been married for two years, and she was old enough to have consummated their marriage. Richard, on the other hand, had five children at this point. This may be where the mudslinging that Gloucester's death was when Richard decided to try to become king came from. Before the death of Gloucester, Richard had someone to step over. Now he only had a king to remove. I do not think he started gunning for the role, and I think his actions over the next few years will show this wasn't his plan at the time. In 1447, the news that Maine was to be returned to the French became public. 
The handover had been delayed until at least the new year, but the cat was out of the bag. Imagine, to my American audience, that we needed to hand Alaska back to Russia, but our president had kept it secret and had gotten very little for handing it back. This is what it was like for the people of England at the time. They were giving back their land and winnings. Suffolk took the blame for this, but did try to defend himself. And since we know the king had already agreed to it, he, of course, forgave Suffolk. At some point in 1447, Richard purchased the wardship and marriage rights of Henry Hullen, the third Duke of Exeter. Remember those sisters of Henry IV I was talking about? Well, this was one of the senior claimants in one of those lines. Exeter was then married to Richard's eight-year-old daughter. Exeter is important, and he will come up a few times in this episode and the next. Throughout 1447, Richard would be active at a normal level in politics in England, and at the end of the year, he would receive a seemingly prestigious appointment, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. This was, of course, something of his birthright through Lionel of Antwerp's marriage. His descendants, including Edmund, Roger, and Edmund Mortimer, the 3rd, 4th, and 5th Earls of March, had been appointed to the role at various times. Unlike these earlier appointments, which were for a few years, Richard was appointed for 10 years. He wouldn't leave until May of 1449. Leaving for Ireland would be good in some ways. It would keep Richard safe from any fallout following Gloucester's death. But it would take him away from court and the king. This would allow others to influence politics in the realm. Before he left for Ireland, he would see a rather happy event occur for his family. His nephew, Richard Neville, the oldest son of his brother-in-law, also Richard Neville, the elder was the fifth Earl of Salisbury, so I'll stick with the titles, was granted the earldom of Warwick, Jury Uxoris, through his wife, Anne Beecham. While titles often become extinct when male lines go extinct, sometimes the king keeps these things going, and this was one of those cases. Salisbury and Warwick will greatly influence and support Richard in the coming years. Salisbury being his brother-in-law, Warwick being his nephew. As many of you know, Ireland didn't love being ruled by the English. The Irish lords and commoners had no interest in being part of England, and the English-originating lords had no interest in putting up with English rule. Many lords' lieutenants sent a deputy to oversee their rule, but Richard seemed set on going there himself. This was great for both him and for English rule in Ireland. Richard pretty much came storming into Ireland, but in a good way. He was welcomed warmly by the English-Irish nobility. As he traveled throughout the English-controlled area, he helped the king, requesting the loyalty of those lords, both to him and the king. Each time a lord swore loyalty to Richard, he also swore loyalty to Henry. Does this sound like a man intent on claiming his cousin's throne? Those who wouldn't swear fealty were dealt with quickly. Using those loyal to him, Richard was able to subdue those who wanted to avoid being ruled. Overall, he did well ruling Ireland and proved to be a popular leader in the country. Matthew Lewis even suggests that Richard may have been planning to stay in Ireland at some point. Richard had been promised payment for his time in Ireland, as he had been promised in France. Much like France, though, Richard was not being paid. He was owed tens of thousands of pounds from his time in France, millions of pounds in today's money. His second parliament in Ireland in 1450 showed that he wasn't receiving the promised pay. This was an ongoing problem with England, 
Henry VI had a poor handle on his country's finances, and with the death of Cardinal Beaufort, there wasn't a purse to run to when funding ran low. On that financial note, I'll pause until next week. Henry's poor financial planning and inability to manage his leading magnates in a way to help support his country will come to bite him very badly next week. It will, though, allow Richard to show how successful he could be when given a chance. I think his actions in Ireland and France really show the character of the man, and the next episode will show how much more prepared he was to lead than the king the country was forced to follow. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at PastPod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.